Thanks, Trina. Well, happy Easter. He is risen. Oh, I'm going to give that one again. He is risen. Amen. Hey, uh, can I extend my welcome to uh, all of you in this room and to all of those that are online right now as you're engaging in this service. It's especially great for, well, it's great to have you with us. And, and uh, if you're here in Bendigo and, and not beyond Bendigo, look forward to seeing you maybe in one of our gatherings at some point in time. Well, I hope your Easter's been a great weekend so far. Thursday and Friday were something really special here as well, too, as we kind of at the very beginning of the weekend, it was like a gateway into uh, the Easter weekend. And just to, to be there in that moment and to reflect and to position ourselves across the, for the weekend. And here we are on Resurrection Sunday celebrating that our Lord and Saviour is not in the grave, but He has risen, He has conquered sin and death, and He is still alive today. And that's a wonderful thing to be here and to celebrate. So uh, trust is special for you and for your families uh, across this weekend. You know, uh, I was thinking the other day about uh, some different moments, some defining moments in my life that maybe I would hold up there as game-changing events. Now, I don't know what that might be for you, but the reality is I think uh, we've all experienced moments like that, whether it's uh, a game-changing person, uh, maybe uh, at a sporting event. Uh, you know, uh, I love sports, and we all know that at different times there's been maybe an individual or a person in the course of that event has, has borne great, such, such great influence that it's changed the course of that game. Or maybe it's been a scenario or a situation in your life that uh, you look back on and you realize, wow, that was such a defining moment. It was a, it was a game-changing event. You know, we all have them. We can probably think of moments in our lives that uh, kind of are indelibly etched. They're just there as if they were yesterday because they hold such significance in our lives. Well, I want to suggest this morning that uh, that very first Easter story was a game-changing event like no other event that has ever happened in history. You know, someone wrote, once wrote a poem, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing right now, but you can Google it at some point, not right now, but called One Solitary Life. Talking about the influence of Jesus of Nazareth. That, uh, you know, as you reflect back over history, uh, more than any army, more than any leader, more than any country or, or any, any other influence around the globe, no one has influenced the course of history like the person called Jesus. And, and that's what we gather together on Easter Sunday, and not just Easter Sunday, but really across uh, all of the different uh, days across the course of the year. You know, we're not just gathering to celebrate uh, a figure in history that uh, was once alive, but then died and uh, is kind of not alive anymore. We are celebrating uh, the known fact, the historical event that Jesus Christ was died, he crucified, but he rose again on the third day and is still alive today. And, and it's this person that has influenced the entire course of history. I want to take a moment this morning and to have us kind of just backtrack through the story that we got. The Gospels hold all these stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in particular today, Mark tells the story in his Gospel. If you've got your Bible, you've got a device, I want to encourage you to come with me to Mark chapter 16, where he tells the story uh, that had been reported to him, and then some, uh, some point in time, he'd written it down on a piece of paper. And as I tell the story today, I want to interact a little bit with the story, and it's my hope and prayer that the story is a bit fresh to us today, or it kind of strikes us in a bit of a new way as we hear it, particularly if we've heard it a number of times. Or maybe today you're sitting here and you're hearing it for the very first time. 
You know, uh, we've got people over the last uh, few weeks who have given their heart to Christ, and so they're sitting here today, and they are. Easter is now impacting them in a way that they have never either heard the story before or they've never felt or sensed that story. So Mark chapter 16, verse 1, uh, it goes like this. Mark, who was a disciple of Jesus, says to us, when the Sabbath was over, now the Sabbath being in the Jewish uh, culture being the Saturday, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now what were they doing? Well, we know from a Jewish culture that uh, they, they, had gone, that they were going there to prepare the body, but Jesus had been taken off the cross. He'd been wrapped in linen. He'd been laid in this tomb. A stone had been put over the tomb. And because it was still uh, it was the Sabbath, they had not had an opportunity to, to properly embalm the body of Jesus. And so uh, the Sabbath had finished at sundown. They had bought some spices, but because it was dark, they didn't have a, uh, an opportunity in that moment to, to go out. And so it is now the first day of the week. It is Sunday, and they are heading out uh, at first light to, to the, the move to do this response. And Mark tells us in verse 2, very early on that first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll a stone away from the entrance of that tomb? You know, we don't know how big that stone was. You know, we have in our minds, we have this image that it was this great, massive stone. We're not really quite sure, but what we do know is that it was a big stone and that it's, uh, these women were thinking, well, we can't do that. Who's going to move the stone for us? You see, that tells me that these women were not expecting an empty tomb. And it tells me they didn't even, in their minds, they weren't even thinking about the resurrection of, of, their, of their Lord and their Savior. In their minds, uh, he was gone. It had been a tumultuous week. And so they make their way out to the tomb, wrestling with this idea of, well, will there be somebody there that might be able to help us? And as Mark tells the story uh, in verse 4, it says, but when they looked up, they've arrived at the tomb and they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And Mark says, they were alarmed. Can you imagine what your reaction might have been in that moment? You know, uh, why were they alarmed? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First and foremost, is things weren't as they expected. They were expecting a stone to be there. They weren't expecting to find an empty tomb and then to hear that the body of Jesus was no longer in the tomb. I mean, it had been a week that had been a roller coaster of emotions. You remember just four or five, well, a week prior to this, they, they were standing on the Mount of Olives as Jesus came up over and made his entrance down into the city of Jerusalem. And the crowds were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes. And they're excited. They're thinking, you know what, Jesus is here. He's taking charge. And yet, just in a few days' time, many of those same people would be crying out, not blessed or hosanna, they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. And they'd gone from this, this uh, roller coaster of a, a triumphant response to suddenly the brutality of a crucifixion. They were alarmed. They're not quite sure what's kind of going on in this moment. And then suddenly they, they wander into the tomb and they are greeted. They come face to face with an angel in human form. Mark tells us that uh, it was a young man dressed in a long white robe uh, and he spoke to them. 
I don't know about you, but uh, you know, I think maybe that would be my reaction as well too if I was in that situation. You, you're coming out, you're grieving in this moment, and suddenly you, you encounter this angel. Things aren't as they were expecting, and you are alarmed. I'm trying to think of maybe there's some other words in there that might, might go in there as well to kind of capture the emotion of all of that. And sensing their anxiety, this is what the angel said. He said in verse 6, don't be alarmed. Don't you love the response? It's okay. It's all right. Just chill. Don't be alarmed. It's just an angel. He says, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You know, uh, years to come, people would, uh, and maybe even on that year, as word kind of got out, uh, it was quite a common thing for people to say, oh, these women, they hadn't gone to Jesus' tomb. They, they, gone, they wandered into the wrong tomb. Well, they hadn't wandered into the wrong tomb. They, they had wandered into the right tomb. And they'd come face to face with an angel who then paints this vivid picture of what Jesus was and what he is now. You know, they say, this Jesus, Jesus, he was crucified. He was dead. He was beyond, you know, he was dead. He'd been laid in this tomb. He was dead, but now he is risen from the dead. Do you get the contrast? He was, but now he is. And these women, as they're hearing this message, as they're hearing these words, they're beginning to realize, hang on, maybe he's alive. And, and the angel then helps them to understand. He says, look, come on in here. He takes them inside the inner burial chamber. And he says, this is where the body of Jesus had been laid, but he's no longer here anymore because he has risen from the dead. Well, according to Mark, this angel then gave these women a really important message to relay. In verse 7, he said, But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Now, I have read that verse on a number of occasions and just kind of moved on from there. But this week, it kind of caught me in a fresh new way. And it did that because of just two words. I don't know whether you picked it up, but the angel says to these women, you know, Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Now, why in the world would the angel say single out Peter? Well, if you know the story, I think there's a very significant reason why. Because at this point in time, Peter and the other disciples, they are locked in a room. They are cowering in fear. And the grief that Peter must have felt at this point in time, you know, uh, maybe sitting off on the corner, we don't know, but, but I, I'd like to think that if it was me, you know, you'd be sitting in this corner just full of remorse thinking, you know what, I had told Jesus. On that moment, I had told him that it doesn't matter where you go, you can count on me. Uh, and, and Jesus had then said to me, uh, Peter, before the night is out, you're going to deny me on three occasions. And I laughed at him. Oh, God, Jesus, I'd never do that. And yet just a few hours prior, as Jesus had gathered in that courtyard, not once, not twice, but three times, he had vehemently denied that he even knew this person called Jesus. Now Peter, he's just gripped with remorse, saddened by all that's kind of gone on, and, and, and being one of Jesus' closest friends, he'd spent so much time with him. And this angel says to these women, Go and tell the other disciples what's happened. Go and tell them and Peter. Can you imagine how those words must have rung in his ears in that particular moment? When the women turned up and they said, guys, guys, hey, hey, it, it's true. 
We've been out to the tomb. Jesus is not there. He is alive. He has risen from the dead. And he has told us to tell you, all of you and Peter, to go to Galilee. Wow. You see, Jesus, this wasn't just something that the angel had said. You know, I am confident the risen Lord had said to the angel that when these women turn up, I want you to tell them. Tell, tell them to go and tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Well, what do these women do? The scriptures tell us that uh, they ran from the tomb. In fact, uh, in uh, verse 8, uh, it says, trembling and bewildered. I think it's a fair way of putting it. You know, that word bewildered comes from the Greek word to mean ecstatic. There is this mixture of emotions that are going on. They're kind of in awe. They're like, this, I think this is what he talked about. He's alive. But, but we saw that he was dead. Trembling and bewildered, they run from the tomb uh, looking for these disciples. And we're told that they make no report of the resurrection. That doesn't mean that they didn't tell anybody. It just simply means that they ran from this place, not stopping to have tea and cake and talk about what they had just seen, but they run from there to look for the disciples to report everything that they had seen and heard. They went to make a report, feeling somewhat overwhelmed and awestruck by all that they had seen and heard. You know... This is maybe not so much the story for today, but isn't God good that in a culture where women were held down, who does, who does Jesus declare his announcement to? Who are the first eyewitnesses? It's the women who then go to the men. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace of lifting everybody up that, you know, one's not more important than the other. Well, how did this announcement, how did this announcement of Christ's resurrection affect these early believers? Well, you see it throughout the scriptures, uh, but they tell us that it changed the lives of skeptics, cowards, and antagonists. That's what the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ did. And it wasn't just one, two, or three people, but it was one person at a time who then began to kind of filter out from there, and we are the recipients today of the good news of Jesus Christ. But let me just, let's, let's look at some of these people for a moment. And let's begin with uh, those who were maybe the hardest to convince the skeptical family of Jesus. You know, you might be sitting here today and you think, well, yeah, maybe I'm a little skeptical as well too. Well, listen to it from the perspective of, of Jesus' own siblings. I mean, can you imagine being the half-brother of Jesus? I mean, imagine growing up and he's just kind of this goody-goody two-shoes that kind of is always doing everything right and never gets into any trouble, but we're always in trouble. I mean... He was a normal human being, and yet his life was distinctively different than all of his other brothers. And as he got older, and then suddenly he began to gather this movement and a following of people all around him, I am sure that his brothers were looking on with a sense of, do you know what? You are an embarrassment, Jesus. And I say that because the scriptures capture it. In John chapter 7, uh, I'll read the verses to you, but uh, in John chapter 7, we have this picture, I think, of his brothers scoffing Jesus kind of mocking him. Anybody ever feel like they're a bit of a prophet without honor in their own home or their own family? You know, you kind of go, oh yeah, it's just Jimmy over there or Susie over there. You know, yeah, we all kind of know what that experience is like. Well, Jesus within his own family was kind of uh, mocked and scoffed at at different times, not by his mother, but certainly by his brothers. 
You know, in John chapter 6, we've got this, this Jesus has just come off feeding the 5,000, and then there is this huge crowd of people that are gathered around him, and he begins to talk about the bread of life, and he says, I am the bread of life. And we're told that many of those who were following just found it's just too hard to believe, and so they left him. And in John chapter 7, this is what his own brothers say to him. Verse 3, they said, speaking to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. And you're thinking, well, they're just encouraging to get out there. No, I think it's got, a, it's, got a, it's got an angle to it. He says, you can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, Jesus, then show yourself to the entire world. They're thinking, you know what? Yeah, we wanna, we're going to sit back and we're going to watch this. This is going to be good. You go out there, Jesus, you put yourself on display. And you can imagine how this might have been exacerbated over the years when then Jesus began to say things like, you know, I am the good shepherd and you are the sheep. And I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Imagine your own sibling saying something like that. Well, well, you know what? This is the response of his brothers. But something happens. On the other side of the, the resurrection, something had shifted and changed because this group of skeptical, this, the, his own family members, where do we find them? We find them in the upper room with the disciples in Acts chapter 1, where they are waiting for the promised gift of God's Holy Spirit. What had changed? What had happened? All you can put this down to is the fact that they come face to face with the resurrection of their own brother, and it had completely changed their life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes about the, the, the list of, of people that Jesus had appeared to in, the, in those first few days. And he writes uh, in verse 7, he writes these words. You've got to hear this. You've got to see this. He says, Then he was seen by James. Who was James? It was the half-brother of Jesus. And later by all the apostles. You see, there is no doubt in my mind that that encounter had transformed not only James' life, but it began to seep out and impact his entire family who were skeptics. And James, this half-brother, would later write in his own letter, the book of James, the letter of James, towards the end of the New Testament. And as he opens, he wrote these words, he said. He describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life that's been changed. But what about the cowards, the cowardly followers of Jesus? And I say that uh, with all... Uh, I say that very cautiously today because... If I was to put myself into one of these groups of people, most likely I would have fallen into the crowd of maybe cowards. See, when the authorities had captured Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that his disciples, they just ran away. You know, we, we think, oh, it's so hard to believe, isn't it? You know, can't imagine that someone would run away from their dear friend in their time of need. Well, maybe we might have as well too. They deserted him. And within a very short period of time, it was Peter who had denied Jesus, vehemently denied him uh, uh, to, to the groups of people that were gathering around. But something happened. Something happened that transformed the lives of that group of men. And then in time, Peter as well too, transformed their lives. So they went from a, from a, a group of men who were hiding in fear to a, to a group who became uh, some of the greatest, uh, could spread the gospel message, not just in Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What was the change? I think day two it encountered Christ. 
Paul talks about that in, in, in some of those accounts as well too. But you know, you know what had happened? I've got to think there was just two words. And Peter. Life so transformed by the fact that he was invited, he was still considered to be one of the disciples by Jesus, that when they met there in Galilee, it just transformed and changed his life. That's what happens. And then I think of an antagonist. We first meet and know as Saul, but later he became known as Paul. So incensed by what was happening at that period of time that he sought the permission of the religious leaders to, to, to move his way through the cities and to uh, incarcerate anybody who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And history tells us that he ravaged the church. He was like a modern-day terrorist at that point in time. He was just destroying people's lives. But one day on the road to Damascus, had the privilege of walking on this road, as one day on the road to Damascus, he encountered, he wasn't quite prepared for this, but he encountered the risen Lord who said, Saul, Saul, why is it that you are persecuting me? And it completely transformed his life. And Paul went from being one of the, the, the bitter interrogators to one of the greatest uh, propagators of the Christian faith that we have ever known. Life radically and completely transformed. You know, after being away for a period of time, he came back into uh, to Jerusalem. And, and we know that uh, he began to then move backwards and forwards across the Mediterranean and what we know as his missionary journeys, gathering groups of believers together, forming churches, and then encouraging them to carry the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, one person at a time. Yeah, well, what happens? He met Jesus. That's what happens. See, when we hear the Easter story, when we think of the Easter story, the resurrection in particular of Jesus Christ, it was a life-changing event. Jesus was a life-changer, and so was this, his resurrection. It was, a, it was an event that changed the course of history. It changed skeptics, it changed cowards, and it changed antagonists. You know, what, what, why? Why was the resurrection so powerful? Why was it so transformative? Hey, let me just share a couple of things. I think these things are important. First and foremost, it just bore witness to the, to the awesome power of God. See, to believe in an empty, in, empty grave and the resurrection is to, is to believe in, in a God who is in control over all things. If God could bring everything into existence, bring life out of nothing, then God can certainly uh, bring, breathe life back into something that is dead. The resurrection speaks of the awesome power, the sovereign power of God over all things, over life and death. But you know, it's secondly, it validated Christ's claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it authenticated all of the Old Testament prophecies that spoke hundreds of years prior to this, that spoke of his death and his resurrection, spoke about all the events that would go around that, and it validated even the statements of Jesus that he would be, that he would be raised from the dead after three days. Living proof that it's true. Third, it proves to us that though it looked like Jesus died on a cross as a common criminal, he died as a sinless man out of his love and out of his self-sacrifice to bear the guilt of our sins. 
The death on the cross was his payments, but his resurrection was the receipt showing that the payment was perfect and paid in full on the side of God's. Fourth, you know what it shows me? You know what it showed to this group of people? And it continues to show down throughout history. That God is for us. He's not against us. God is for us. That's why Good Friday is so good. He is for us. You know, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I, I just want to share, it's so well known, but you know what? Hear it through the lens that, of, of God being for us. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. He sent Him. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Friends, God is for us. If you're sitting here today wondering whether God loves you, those two verses alone in all of Scripture kind of remind you that God is for you, not against you. And he's wanting to be in relationship with you. And fifth, and certainly this is not uh, by any far the least or the, the last reason why, I think it it promises. Why is it so significant? It promises those who place their faith and hope in Him uh, a life for today and and a bright and eternal future. It promises an opportunity for a brand new start. And so I suppose I want to ask a question today. You know, what does that empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for you today? See, it's a personal question. And I want to suggest that it really does matter what you and I choose to believe about Easter. We can be dismissive of it. That can be a choice. I want to say it really does matter what you believe about Easter. We can embrace it. It really does matter what we believe about Easter. It really does matter. Now, the reality is that many of you are here in this room today because this is your story. Your life has been transformed. You encountered the risen Christ in your own particular way and it has forever changed your life. It was a game-changing event. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family and and you've just, you're the product. You've come to know who Jesus Christ is and so today you still celebrate that in all of its entirety uh, because it it has been one of those events, a life-changing event by God's grace. You've grown up in that family and so you know and understand the truth and you've embraced it for yourself. Or maybe your story is a little bit different and that you've kind of come to faith through a different way with your realization of who Jesus Christ is and you're here today and that is your story. See, that's my testimony and it's a story of people right across this room. But maybe you're also here today and for you, Jesus was, was, as you thought, just kind of this great moral person. This person that has kind of done a number of things in history, but as you continue to grapple with it, you continue to grow in your understanding that he was much more than just an historical person, that if he was raised from the dead, then he is also the Messiah, the Son of God, and that's got implications for my life. And maybe, just maybe today, you're beginning to realize that you need to do something about that. You need to do something with this King Jesus who offered himself up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's God for us, not God against us. And you too today can embrace Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior and to become a friend of God. You know what? 
They're easy statements to make. I realize that. And you know, I might even be sitting here, you might be watching online today, and you're wondering, what does that mean to embrace Jesus Christ as King Jesus, as your own Lord and Savior, to, to, and to become a friend of God? Can I say this? maybe three really important things you've got to acknowledge today, whether you're young or whether you're old. The first thing is you've got to admit that you're a sinner. You see, you've got to admit that you do and say things at different times that aren't good and, and that you can't ever be good enough. That's why Jesus came to, to make you good. He came to, buy, to, to die and pay the penalty of your sin. We have to start in that place by saying, you know what, I realize that there's something in me that's wrong and I'm going to admit that I'm a sinner. The second thing is that we're going to believe. We're going to, it's, a, it's a statement of belief. Uh, that as we think about what happened in that game-changing event in history, that you're going to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He's come, and that He is holding Himself up as the way, the truth, and the life, and that I need to believe in that and to embrace that for myself too. And then the third thing is really just simply saying, you know what, I am going to come to Jesus and I'm going to ask Him to rescue me, to forgive me of my sin, uh, and to give me an opportunity to a brand new start. See, we, we can never ever put ourselves in a spot of ever being good enough. That's why Christ came. He came to make us good, and that's why Good Friday is so good. Some of us are here in this room today, and our story is that Jesus has transformed our lives, and he continues to keep doing that. And others of us may be here or online, and we're thinking about this, and we're thinking, well, I've never done that. And I want to say, well, here is your opportunity right now in this moment as uh, I pray in just a moment, an opportunity for you to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour and for Easter to be a day like you've never, and a weekend that you've never experienced before. It's your opportunity as well. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray some words that uh, really are just an embodiment of those three things. Admit your sin, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He's come for you, and, and ask Him right now to come and to rescue you and to help you now live out this new life as his son or his daughter. That, that's that simple. Can I just say, there's nothing magic in any of these words. Really, it's just a reflection. It's an attitude. It's a posturing of your own spirit, of your own life uh, in this moment of time. And so to do that today, you know, I, I want to encourage those of us that are in this room, and maybe if you're online today, I want to encourage you, would you just bow your heads? Because this is a really sacred moment right now, because there are people here, people online who are thinking about, you know what, I actually want to give my heart to Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you, just in the quietness of this room, not out loud, because this is just about, it's a posturing of the heart, to maybe repeat these words after me. Lord God, I thank you that you love me. I thank you for the death of Jesus on my behalf. I come to you today and I say that I am really sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for ignoring you in my life. And right now I'm asking you to forgive me. Today, I put my life into your hands. And I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. And I ask that you would give me the courage to live out what I now believe to be true. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
You know, while we're here quietly in this room, our heads are still bowed. It's a moment for us to reflect. You know, for those of you that already know Jesus, maybe I'm going to ask you to keep praying into that moment because there are people who are wrestling with that particular question, with that decision, here or maybe online right now. And we need to be leaning in. You know, God's Word says uh, the great prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, this is one of these moments where we're praying that all of God's will in heaven would invade earth as it is right now into the hearts of people. But if you've made that decision, you might be wondering, well, what do I do next? You know, well, first, I want to just affirm you, if you've made that decision today, then you today, you are a child of God. Your sins have been forgiven. You stand in a completely different relationship with God right now. You've become His friends. And that's well worth celebrating. But secondly, I want to encourage you to share with somebody, another follower of Jesus. Maybe it's a spouse, it's a friend. Maybe it's another Christian that you know. Maybe you're sitting with somebody right now, and if you've made that decision, maybe just grab their hand and squeeze it. Let them know you've made that decision because they're going to want to celebrate with you, and they're going to want to walk with you and help you to understand what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe one other thing today as a next step. I want to encourage you to pick up God's words and begin to read through the gospel stories. Maybe read through the gospel of Mark. And as you read, maybe just underline all the things that Jesus says that you should do. You underline it and you say, maybe that you're going to pray over it and say, God, would you help me? Jesus, Lord Jesus, would you help me to obey that? Because that's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Obedience is the engine of transformation. That's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He says something to us and we go, I've got to do something about that. I'm going to obey Dive into God's Word. You know, if you don't have a Bible, you know what? Why don't you send me an email? Or come and see me after. You come and see me afterwards. Or if you're online, shoot me an email. Connect at benigobaptist.org.au. I'll make sure you've got a Bible. I'd love to chat with you about all of that as well too. This is a significant moment. This is worthy of celebration. What was lost has now been found. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done in our lives. We thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that you were not held in the grave there, but you triumphed out of the grave. And because of that, you have completely transformed our lives. And God, we acknowledge that we don't always get it right that's Sometimes we lose sight of you and your son, Jesus, but thank you that you never lose sight of us. And so, Father, I'm praying for people here and online right now that uh, for those that uh, have uh, been following you for a long time, Lord, may this just be a good reminder of of what our our life and our purpose is all about. God, would you put an extra spring in our step as we go from here today with a renewed sense of passion and enthusiasm as one of your followers. Because we know that you want to use us one person at a time. You want to use us to play our part to share the good news about your son, Jesus. 
Father, would you really encourage those who are making decisions right now? Encourage them to share those decisions, to let others know, Father, we we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you on this day in Jesus' name. Amen.